today. We're in Genesis chapter 37, verses 2 through 4. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pastoring the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons, because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all of his other brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. No, that's okay. There we go. My fault, not Daniel's. Thank you. Oh, man. How y'all doing? Okay, you didn't convince me, but we'll move on anyway. Okay, so new series today. A series called Faithful. God is faithful even in the most difficult times of our lives. We often don't feel that way or see it when times are difficult, but it is true. And we'll see that in the lives of Joseph and Daniel. Uh, And because God is faithful, we know that even during difficult times, we can be faithful to him as well. And we'll see that also in Joseph and Daniel, even though Joseph acts like a bit of a punk in chapter 37 today that we go through. I would highly recommend that you read these texts yourselves, especially these 14 uh, chapters out of uh, the last uh, part of Genesis, uh, because like I said, we are going to just fly over them. I will not personally read every verse uh, while I teach them. I will summarize a lot of the verses, but I would encourage you to read them. One of the reasons is, do we have any James Patterson novel fans out here? It's okay. We're a grace church. You can raise your hand and admit that you read James Patterson novels. Uh, This reads a lot like a James Patterson novel. There's all the twists and turns and all the weird and wicked kind of stuff. HBO could not have a series that would be better written, especially than the Joseph uh, story. And today we are going to look at three chapters. So each of these chapters has a story that is integral to the entire overarching narrative of chapters 37 through 50. So we need to take a look at each of them. And in these three chapters, we have titled it The Descent. And the reason we titled it The Descent is because you will encounter in these three chapters an unbelievable depth of depravity that it is hard to imagine that any human being can get to, but these human beings in these stories get to this deep level of wickedness. And let me just mention this. As dark and as sinful as you might think some of your family is, I just would suggest that nothing compares to the uh, family that we're going to look at Uh, here. Yet in the midst of all of that, we will see that God will somehow redeem everything that happens. He will use it to his good purposes and plan. And in fact, we get a glimpse of the line of the Messiah in uh, chapter 38 in the midst of all of this depravity. I will also mention this. There are some of you that bring children into the service, which I love and I'm happy for and I'm glad about. The content in chapters 37 through 39 is rated NC-17. I will do my very best to euphemize as much as I possibly can. But there may be a word or two that I will have to use in order to get a point across, and you might be spending some time explaining some things to your children this afternoon. So I would encourage you to maybe go to Dairy Queen, buy them a Dilly Bar, and just have that conversation with them, okay? So uh, we'll see what happens. All right, so uh, we also have the Bibles now under the chairs. So if you need a Bible, please grab one of the Bibles under the chairs and turn to page 20. That's where Genesis chapter 37 uh, begins. All three of these stories are foundational to the overall narrative, and we need to kind of blow through them. So let's look at those verses that Sean just read to kind of get us started. Genesis 37, verses 2 through 4. These are the generations of Jacob. Now, Jacob is the patriarch, the father. He's also known as Israel, so those names are interchangeable. What's interesting about that line there, these are the generations of Jacob, is that then we go into the telling of the story of Joseph. It's really not that much about Jacob. It's really more about Joseph. So don't get confused on that part. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. Jacob had more than one wife. 
We do not advocate or teach that that's a good thing at Redemption Church, but it is in the text, and we will have to uh, deal with it. Uh, Joseph, however, was not the son of Bilhah or Zilpah. He was the son of Rachel, Jacob's favorite wife, and I'll explain a little bit more about that. And Joseph brought a bad report to them uh, to their father. Joseph is 17 years old, but he is also the second youngest of 12 brothers, okay? Now, how many of you have a younger brother or sister, a younger sibling? How many, <laughs> there's three of them raising their hands down here. How many of you realize that the younger ones tend to go and tell on the older ones quite a bit? Okay, well, this is just normal fare for most families, okay? So he brings a bad report to their father. Now Israel, Jacob, loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age and of Rachel. And he made, a ro- he made him a robe of many colors. If you're an Andrew Lloyd Webber fan, you know that this is the amazing Technicolor dream coat. Okay? Um, and, and so here you go. Here's a, here, by the way, let me just go back to last week on the parenting thing. Okay? I mentioned that you need, as parents, you need to realize that your children are going to be different, and so you're going to treat them a little bit differently. We do not, however, advocate that you love one child more than the other, nor do we advocate that if you do love one child more than the other, that you broadcast it to the world and you tell the other children that you love uh, one more than the other. That is probably not a good parenting technique. That's what Jacob is doing here. Essentially, again, to modernize the text, what Jacob is doing is he's taking Joseph to Nordstrom's to shop for clothes, and then he takes all the other brothers to Goodwill to shop for clothes, okay? And the brothers resent that, all right? They see this coat, and, J- and Joseph wears this coat all the time, and he's a little bit snotty about it as well in, in, in chapter 37, so they don't really like him. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all of his other brothers, they hated him and could not speak uh, peacefully to them. So let me uh, review a little bit here. Like I said, Joseph is only 17 years old. He's the second youngest of 12. Chapters 37 through 50 of Genesis cover 22 years of Joseph's life. So this is a long story. He is a favorite son, the favorite son, because he's the first son that uh, Jacob was able to have with his favorite wife, Rachel. Okay? And he was a son of Jacob's old age. Jacob was really past the age that he should be able to do this type of thing, but he was able to do it. And so Joseph becomes a favorite for that reason as well. And those of you, again, that have younger brothers and sisters, have you ever noticed that there are times that the younger brothers and sisters seem to get treated with some sort of special favor favor or treatment, uh, that in fact that it is easier for the younger ones to manipulate the parents than the older ones? Isn't that... All right, here you go. I'm going to just tell you. I am the youngest of five, and I worked that all the time. And my older siblings all knew that. And let me tell you something. They wanted to kill me. Now, hopefully, the fact that they wanted to kill me was really just metaphorically. But in Joseph's case, he works this advantage with Jacob. And his brothers literally wanted to kill him, as we will see in the story. He pushes. Notice that verse 4 ends with, they hated him. He's got that coat. He's the favored one. And they know that Jacob loves him. And then this idea of hating him becomes a refrain for the rest of the chapter. Joseph keeps doing things, and the sons, it says in the text, continue to hate him all the more. And they hated him all the more. And they're heaping hate upon hate upon hate upon hate. And so what happens next in the text is that Joseph has a dream. In his dream, all of the brothers bow down to Joseph and submit to his authority. Now, having that dream is one thing, but then doing what Joseph did is yet another thing. After Joseph had the dream, he went to his brothers and he said, guys, gather around. I've got some great news to tell you. And so he gathered all of his brothers around. He said, no, you need to sit down because that's what's going to happen to you later on. Okay, I had a dream and all of you are going to bow down to me and my authority. And he's saying this to men in a context and in a culture that values age over youth. And so there is, this, there is this terrible tension going on, and of course they hated him all the more. 
And then after that dream and that episode, Joseph had yet another dream. In this dream, not only do his brothers bow down to his authority, but also his mother and father bow down to his authority. And again, Joseph makes the same mistake. Probably wearing that stinking coat that they can't stand, he gathers them around again and he says, I got more good news for you. In fact, God has confirmed the dream by giving it to me a second time. You're all going to bow down to me. Even mom and dad are going to bow down to my authority. And they hate him all the more. So after this happens, Jacob looks at his at all of his sons and he says, all right, we've got all these herds to take care of and it's herding time, so we need to take care of the animals. And so he sends all the brothers out to take care of their herds, their goats, their sheep, their ox, oxen, sorry, plural, all of those things, okay? And they take them away to a city called Shechem, which is 30 miles away from where Jacob lives. Sends all the sons out except one son he holds back. Who do you think he holds back? It's not a trick question. Come on, work with me here, people. He holds back Joseph, okay? Has anybody here ever herded goats or sheep? Anybody here ever done anything like that? It's miserable. I would, have, I would prefer to be the one like Joseph being held back, playing Wii on the big flat screen and all that, because that's what Joseph's doing back at Jacob's house, okay? So he sends out all the brothers to work, holds back Joseph. Then Jacob says to Joseph, listen, I wonder what's going on with your brothers. I wonder if everything is well. I'm going to send you out to find out how they're doing, and then you can bring a report back to me. How do you think this is going to go, Okay. So Joseph says, okay, I'll go find him and bring a report back. So he goes to Shechem because that's where they were supposed to be. He looks around and he doesn't see his brothers or, their, or the herds. And so he starts asking the townspeople. And he says, have you seen these guys with these herds? And, they, and one person finally says, oh, yeah, 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 we saw them. Uh, they sort of uh, grazed everything down to nothing here. And so uh, they have moved on to a place called Dotham, which is another 20 miles away. Now, I want you to grab this. We live in a time of technology and wonderful transportation. 50 miles does not sound like that far. But 4,000 years ago, with no technology and no transportation, they may as well have been 100,000 miles away from their father. They didn't have any Skype. They didn't have any Facebook. They didn't have any YouTube. No texting, nothing. No trains, planes, or automobiles. Steve Martin wasn't anywhere in sight. You need to understand this, okay? And Dotham had a city motto. And here's how that city motto went. What happens in Dotham... Yeah, that's exactly right. Now, I'm outside of the text here, I'm, but I'm, I'm guessing that that's kind of what happens, okay? So they see Joseph coming from afar. They can see him. They must be down in a valley, and Joseph is a little bit elevated. And here's what the text says. The brothers saw him from afar. This is verse 18. And before Joseph came near to them, the brothers conspired against him to kill him. And they weren't speaking metaphorically. They were serious. And they said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Now, let, let me stop there and just ask you this question, okay? This is really good for self-analysis. And, and every time I read this story, I ask myself this same question. What do you think people see, say when they see you coming toward them? At work? In the neighborhood? At school? How do they identify you? Do they identify you with superlatives? or with other words that maybe we shouldn't use in church. These guys do not identify Joseph with any favor whatsoever. Ever. I imagine that they said it very sarcastic. Here comes this dreamer. So here comes this dreamer. Let's kill him and throw him into one of the pits, a, a well, a cistern. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and then we'll see what comes of his dreams. Okay? So they get Joseph there, and the first thing they do is they rip the coat off. They can't stand the coat. The first, they rip the coat off of him, and they're getting ready to kill him, and then Brother Reuben finally gets a conscience, and he steps in, okay? He's the guy we named the sandwich after. He steps in, and, and he says, guys, 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 let's wait, 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 just a minute, okay? Let's not kill him. Let's think about this a little bit. Can you just hold off on killing him? And the brother said, all right, I'll tell you what. We'll throw him into the, into the well alive, and then we'll decide what to do. We'll go ahead and have our dinner. But in the meantime, Reuben, you go out and watch the flocks while we eat. So this is one of those things where it's later on in the evening. One person still has to watch the flocks, but everybody else is getting ready to eat. As the other brothers, the ten brothers, sit down to eat, 
a band of Ishmaelite traders comes by and they are on their way to Egypt. And Judah gets an idea. Now, let me just tell you a little ethnic issue that is embedded in the text here. The the Ishmaelites are actually modern-day Iranians. And Joseph and his brothers are Jewish. So just imagine, okay, Judah gets an idea. And Judah's idea is that they're going to sell Joseph into slavery to the Ishmaelites. So you have a Jewish boy being sold into slavery to the Iranians. But here's... Here's what Judah says, or what he does, in verse 26. Then Judah said to his brothers, they saw these traitors, and they said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal our blood? So far, so good. Yea, Judah. But then the next line is a bit of a problem. Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. So here's what happens. The love of money triumphs over the lust for revenge and Judah is able to manipulate in his mind this creative way that they can still get Joseph out of their hair and in fact killed because nobody gets sold to Ishmaelite traders taken to Egypt and survives that. So they know Joseph's going to get killed anyway, okay? But they don't have the blood on their hands and they're going to get some money out of it. What did they get? They got 20 shekels for Joseph. Now again, using conversion rates and everything, what that amounts to is about three months' wages for each of the brothers. Let me ask you something if you have a little brother or sister. How much are they worth to you? At least three months' wages? Okay. So they go ahead and sell Joseph to this band of Ishmaelite traders. And they send him on his way. And they know that they've done something great because nobody is supposed to survive going down to Egypt as a slave. Okay. Now, Joseph, I'll just tip my hand a little bit. Joseph does survive because God's with him, but the brothers don't know that. They think he's gone and they are done with him. They take his coat and they doctor it. They rip it to shreds and then they pour some blood on it. And then they take it back to Jacob, their father. And this is very clever and very tricky. Nobody in the 21st century would ever think to be able to lie this cleverly. They take the coat to Jacob and they hand it to him and they say, we found this out there. Could you examine it and tell us whose you think it is and what might have happened to this poor soul? And of course, Jacob takes it, looks at it and says, well, this is the coat I got him at Needless Mar- uh, Neiman Marcus, okay? This is the coat I bought Joseph and obviously some animal has ravaged him to death and he is dead. Again, let me ask you a question. And I ask myself this all the time, too, because I am really good at manipulation, just so that you know, okay? Have you ever been accurate without being truthful? Have you ever been accurate without being truthful in order to manipulate a situation? They just led Joseph down this path so far and then let him come to the conclusion that they hoped that he would come to. And here's, I'm sorry, they led Jacob down that path. And here's what Jacob does. Then uh, This is verse 34. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son for many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, Nope, I'm going to go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Sheol is the Hebrew version of afterlife. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites, the Ishmaelites, had sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. We will come back to that in chapter uh, 39. But now we have what is known as a concurrent interlude. Chapter 38 is now the story of Jacob, um, I'm sorry, Judah, brother Judah's next 22 years of life. Chapter 38 runs concurrently with chapters 39 through 44, which are the next 20 years of Joseph's life. So you need to understand that, that really what you have are two now um, uh, narratives that are running side by side. So chapter 38 is this story of Judah and what happens with his life after he separates himself from his brothers, okay? And let me, let me tell you something. You're going you're gonna to listen to this chapter and you're not going to like Judah very much after you hear this chapter. But essentially, here is the story of Judah. Chapter 38, verses 1 through 5. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adolamite whose name was Herah. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. 
He took Shua and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son. He married Shua, and he called his uh, and, and he called his first son Ur. So uh, anybody named Ur here? That's an interesting name. No one named Ur. Okay. Here are my sons: uh, Sean, Joseph, and Ur. Okay. So. So he's got a son named Ur, and then she conceived again and bore another son, and she called him Onan, and then she bore yet another son, and she called him Shelah. She, so he's got a Shelah now as well. And Judah was in Chazib when she bore him, when she had all of these uh, children, okay? So Judah's got three sons. Um, and, and I want to tell you the, the, the story of what happens to these three sons because it sets up what happens with Judah and Tamar, and this is very, very important. The first son named Ur, found this woman named Tamar, and he marries Tamar. Tamar is pretty famous in biblical folklore, and this story is why. She actually becomes an immoral woman and, and yet is still in the line of the ancestry of Jesus, our Savior. So this is a big deal. Well, Ur and Tamar get married. Ur's probably, I don't know, 19 or, or, or 18 or 17 years old when he marries Tamar. He's very young. But then Ur dies suddenly, and he was not able to create any children or offspring with Tamar. So Tamar is now a widow with no children. And this creates a clash of two cultural practices, two major cultural practices back then that actually come into dissonance with each other, and it creates a huge mess. Here's the first cultural practice that it creates. In their culture at that time, any time that a man was married to a wife and he dies without leaving any children, it falls upon the next brother in line to then marry the widow, marry his sister-in-law, and produce children with his sister-in-law. That was the rule. It, it's the idea of the kinsman redeemer that you all studied last summer in the book of Ruth before it was actually written down. But they were still doing it a thousand years before Ruth was even alive. This was the, the, the thing that they did. So Onan was required now to marry Tamar, whether he liked her or not, whether he thought she was attractive or not, whatever. He was now required to marry Tamar. So he marries Tamar, but he's not so high on the idea of producing offspring with Tamar, and here's why. This is the clash of the second cultural practice. In that culture, when the patriarch, Jacob in this, uh, 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 Judah in this case, dies, uh, it was customary to leave the estate to all the brothers but none of the daughters, and it was always split up this way. The first son always received a double portion of the estate, and then all the other brothers got equal lesser portions. So just for argument's sake, let's assume that Judah has an estate worth a million dollars and he dies and all three sons are alive. Ur would get $500,000. Onan and Shelah would each get $250,000. Well, now Judah is still alive, but Ur has died. So now Onan moves into first position and there's only two of them. So Onan would get $667,000 if Judah dies. And uh, Sheila would only get $333,000. But, now follow the bouncing ball. Take a sip of your caffeine-late drink and follow me on this. But, if Onan, who is now married to Tamar, gets Tamar pregnant with a son, and she gives birth to the son, that son goes back into Ur's first position. So, Tamar's son would now get the double portion. So if Onan gets Tamar pregnant with a boy, he goes from $667,000 back down to $250,000. He doesn't like that mathematical situation. So what he does is he marries Tamar and he sleeps with her, but he does it in such a way that she does not get pregnant. You can read the details in chapter 38 for yourself. And what he does in God's eyes is wicked. And God is not happy with this, and so God decides to smite Onan. So now Ur is dead, Onan is dead. Both of them probably before their 18th birthday are both dead. So Judah steps back and looks at Tamar and says, I see a cause and effect relationship between my sons marrying you and them dying suddenly thereafter. And so therefore, the law requires that I would give you Sheila in marriage, but Tamar, I have another idea. Let's hold off on that for a while, and later on, maybe we will figure out how to get Sheila to marry you, but right now, I'm going to withhold Sheila from you. 
Well, Tamar says okay, but she's not happy about this because now she's a widow who is left totally unprotected, unprotected in that culture as a result. She deserves to have Sheila as a husband, even though he's probably only 12 or 14 at this time. But still, she deserves to have him. So she's miffed at Judah. She moves away to another town. A few years pass. Judah's wife dies. And so now after Judah uh, has mourned the passing of, of his wife, he decides he needs to go on a business trip. And he just so happens to be going to the city where Tamar lives. Tamar hears through the grapevine that Judah is coming. And so what she does is she puts on clothes that make her look like a prostitute and then goes and stands at the city gates and she lures Judah into her trap. She sets out to set him up, okay? And so here is what happens. We drop down now to, I'll have to turn the page, chapter 38, verses 15 through 19. Judah's coming along on business. He's not married anymore. And when Judah saw Tamar, he thought that she was a prostitute for she had covered her face. So he doesn't know who she is. He doesn't know that this is his daughter-in-law. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. And she said, Let the negotiations begin. What will you give me that you may come into me? And he answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, fat chance I've heard that story before. You don't have a goat with you. I need some collateral. That's my interpretation of what she says here. She says, if you give me a pledge until you send it, uh, um, uh, and she said, if you give me a pledge until you send it, and he cut her off and said, what pledge shall I give you? And she replied, I want your signet, and I want your cord, and I want your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Interesting that nobody else could get Tamar pregnant, but now her father-in-law is able to do it. When she arose and went away, then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put back on the garments of her widowhood. Here's what happened. Every guy back then, 4,000 years ago, had a family staff that looked something like this. This is um, a hiking stick that a friend of mine gave to me as a present. I don't think um, Judas had this nifty little uh, compass in here or the suede handle. But every person, every guy back then did have a walking staff. And it was unique to their family. It was a family heirloom that was passed down from generation to generation. And they would etch the names of the people in the stick that owned the stick. Okay, And so this staff, this stick, was only identifiable with Judah. All right, And then they also would wear around their neck a cord with a signet, which was a seal. It was a way of signing business documents uh, for legal purposes, and Judah was on a business trip, so he had to have this. So what, she a- what she's asking for is the lanyard and the stick, okay? Again, in modern-day interpretation, here's what she got from Judah. She got his driver's license and his credit card as collateral. That's what happens, okay? So Judah leaves, and he heads back home, and Tamar's got his stuff that easily identifies Uh, him and this is going to be a problem i'm guessing so he gets home and he grabs his delivery boy and he says here take this goat to the prostitute that's at the city gates of the city that i was just in so the guy takes the goat to the city gates and he's looking around he doesn't see any prostitute okay so then he goes into town and he says hey i have this goat for the for the prostitute and everybody's sitting there going there was no there has never been one we don't know what you're talking about We have no idea who you're talking about. There's never been a prostitute at the city gate. So the guy carries the goat back to Judah and says to Judah, he says, listen, they said there's never been any such woman. So now Judah's got a problem. He could go back to the city and raise a stink and try to find the woman, but then everybody would know that he was doing business with a prostitute. And he wants to be seen as a righteous dude, so he doesn't want to do that. So he says, let her keep my stuff. Let her keep the staff and the cord. Otherwise, I will become a laughingstock in their community. Okay? Well, look at what happens next. He's trying to sweep it under the rug. How do you think that's going to work? Not a trick question again. Look at verses 24 through 26. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by the immorality. And Judah says to her, Bring her out so that we can burn her. 
bring her out. This little, mm, 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 bring her out so that we can burn her. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. So she hands the credit card and driver's license, essentially, to the guy and says, tell Judah that if he can identify who owns these, he's the one who's responsible for my immorality. She's got him cold. How do you think Judah is going to respond? Actually, this is his come-to-Jesus moment. He, this, God uses this incredible act of immorality to change his heart and open his eyes to spiritual reality. Look at how he reacts. Then Judah identified them and he said, She is more righteous than I am since I did not give my son, Sheila, to her. And he did not know her again. And notice that he doesn't even go to the sin of sleeping with a prostitute. He went all the way back to the sin of withholding his son from Tamar. And he looks at her and says, even in her sin, she is more righteous than I am. I'm the low life here. Now, some of you may be saying, how in, this world, how, how in the world does this relate to Joseph's situation? Well, ultimately, you're going to have to wait until weeks three and four to see this play out. But I'll give you the, the short story right up front. Judah becomes a type of Jesus Christ in the story later on. Judah becomes a man who later on in this story literally goes to the most powerful person in the world and says, don't kill that person over there, kill me instead. He's willing to sacrifice his own life out of love, mercy, and compassion, out of righteous duty for somebody else. He never would have done that before this event in his life. God used this humiliating event of sin in Judah's life to change him from a self-centered, selfish, low life into somebody uh, with a heart of compassion, mercy, love, and forgiveness. Here you go. Sometimes, maybe even more than sometimes, God will need to use our sin in order to turn us into what He wants us to become. Now, am I saying that you should rush out of here and go sin all the more? That's not, we're not recommending that. But I am saying to you that if you are wallowing in the depths of guilt and regret about your sin, wallow no more. There is a Savior named Jesus Christ who died on a cross for that sin, and He did so so that He could redeem it, and so that God could use that in your life to make you the person that He is calling you to be. God is a God of love and compassion, grace, mercy, and forgiveness. He will take all the junk and funk in your life and my life, and He will turn it into something good if you just let Him. It's Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And we know God causes all things to work together for good for those who, are, who love Him and are called according to His purpose. This is a kind of interesting picture of the gospel playing out in the lives of sinners just like you and I. God will use whomever He wants, whenever He wants, no matter how depraved they are. And this story demonstrates that. And that means He can use you and me. And by the way, for those of you who are sitting here today who have been using the excuse of I'm not good enough to be used by God, that, explo- that, that excuse has just been blown to smithereens. In fact, it's the good news that you are bad enough. You're so bad that you can be used by God. I'm so bad that I can be used by God. That's His motto. God, God's motto is that sin, sinners are accepted and loved and are called according to God's purpose and plan. And in fact... Tamar gives birth to twins. One of them is named Perez. And if you look at the New Testament lines of the Messiah, you will see both Tamar and Perez mentioned. She ended up as uh, one of the bearers, one of the progenies of the Messiah. What can God do in your life? All right, one more story. I know we're fatigued. We're running out of energy. It's okay. One more story, chapter 39. Let's look at this. This is a meanwhile back to Joseph now in Egypt. Look at verses 1 through 6 in 39. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. So the Ishmaelites proved to be good entrepreneurs. They flipped Joseph. 
They bought him for 20 shekels, and I imagine they probably sold him for 40 or something like that. So they made a profit. And the Lord was with Joseph. That's interesting. The Lord was with Joseph. And he became a successful man. And he was in the house of his Egyptian master, Potiphar. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in Potiphar's sight and attended him. And Potiphar made Joseph overseer in his house. He is now chief operating officer of Potiphar Enterprises and put him in charge of all that he had. From that time, on, uh, from that, time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was all that, that he had in, in house and was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of Joseph, he had no concern about anything except for the food that he ate. Okay, so like I said, the Ishmaelites flipped Joseph to Potiphar. Potiphar is the captain of the guard. If you want again, if you want to modernize it, he is the director of the secret service. He's a really important guy. He's the captain of the guard. He's in charge of the security around Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, but he's also in charge of the security for the entire nation of Egypt. So uh, most scholars say that he is the third most important person in the entire country of Egypt, which means he's the third most important person in the whole world because Egypt was the only superpower in the world at that time. And then we sense a theme in chapter 39 that wasn't there in chapter 38, in chapter 37. The Lord was with Joseph. As you read through 39, you'll hear that over and over. The Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph. And people saw that the Lord was with Joseph. Even through all of these tough times, and more bad stuff is going to happen to Joseph um, in succeeding uh, chapters as well, but, but the Lord was with Joseph. And here's one of the things we need to remember about the Lord being with you. Being invited into a relationship with God does not guarantee that you will have an easy, carefree life. In fact, Jesus tells us just the opposite. He says, in this world, you're going to have trouble. But take heart, I've overcome the world. In other words, as you're having your trouble, take heart because I'm going to walk with you through this. It's James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, where James tells us, um, consider it all joy when you encounter all kinds of trials and tribulation in your life. Why? Because the testing of your faith that those trials bring will produce in you perseverance, endurance, and patience. So there's, there's good that will come out of the suffering that we all endure. And I know that some of you have been suffering for a long time. You're sick of it. You want it to be over with. But what you need to understand, and I know this is hard. I don't like it either. But you need to understand that God's stories take a long time to play out. We live in a culture where we want everything to be resolved by 5 o'clock this afternoon, no later than 9 o'clock tomorrow morning. One of the reasons is because all we do is watch sitcoms on television where everything resolves magically in 22 minutes. God is not the author of a sitcom. He is the author of our life, and He loves journeys and processes. And so our God stories might take months, years, or even decades. Joseph's took 22 years to resolve. And also... Others are going to see us going through this junk, and if they see God with us, that will be a magnificent testimony about God's goodness and love to others. I had a friend named Steve last fall at the age of 57. He was diagnosed with cancer. And I remember we met together with his wife, Bobby, and I was expecting to hear the lament that many people who get cancer was going to get. Why would God do this? I can't believe I've served and loved God for all my life. Why would he do this? Instead, he sat down with me and he said, I am so excited about the opportunity to allow God to work through me during this cancer. I want other people to be able to see the love and mercy of God as he deals with me in this cancer. God is going to use this cancer in me as a magnificent testimony to others. And then he set out and did that for the rest of his life. A couple of weeks ago, uh, unexpectedly, we thought he was going to live another five or ten years, but a couple of weeks ago, unexpectedly, he developed complications from the treatments in his cancer, ended up at Scottsdale Memorial on a Monday morning, was taken into ICU Monday night, and Thursday he passed away. Last Tuesday we had his memorial service, and there were 150 people there, and that was the constant refrain of the people at that memorial service. They were amazed at how God used the cancer in Steve's life so that Steve could be a testimony of God's goodness and graciousness throughout the rest of his life. 
Even Monday night as they were moving him into ICU, Steve was laughing and joking about how great it was that God was using this even though he might be dying before he was supposed to. That's a magnificent testimony. And in the midst of this, Joseph is going to have a magnificent testimony as well. So he's in charge. But then there's this little detail at the end of verse 6 where it says, Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. There's a little principle about Scripture interpretation that says if there's a detail in the Scripture that maybe doesn't necessarily have to be there, that detail is important to the rest of the story. So here's what happens. Joseph is is good-looking. He's got a nice face that belongs on the cover of GQ, and he also works out at LA Fitness, so he's looking really good in form as well. This guy is hot, and he's 27 years old, and he's working in this house where Potiphar is constantly on vacation, and there is a wife of Potiphar in the house. We don't know her name, so we refer to her as Mrs. Potiphar, okay? I don't know why we don't get her name, but we'll just call her Mrs. Potiphar. And she decides to cause some trouble. And here's the deal. Joseph has been a slave, so he hasn't been involved with any woman in his entire 27-year life, though he probably there are probably women who would like to be involved with him. And, and, and here's Ms. Potiphar. She's married to the third most powerful guy in Egypt, meaning the world. You have to guess that she's probably pretty nice looking herself. I mean, this guy probably... I, let's not sanitize the text, okay? Potiphar probably married a 10, okay? And so now she's chasing Joseph around the house, okay? Whenever there's nobody in the house, she's chasing Joseph around. And here you go. Here's what she... Sorry about this. This is going to be... But this is what... They didn't, they didn't spend a lot of time on clever pickup lines 4,000 years ago. She kept walking up to Joseph and said, Joseph, lie with me. Joseph, lie with me. Nothing like, hey, haven't I seen you around here before? It was just, Joseph, lie with me, Okay. So Joseph finally has a conversation with her, and he says, listen, I can't do that for two reasons. Number one, I'm not going to sin against my earthly master, your husband, because in spite of the fact that I'm a slave, he's been really good to me, and I can't do that to him. And second of all, I can't sin against my heavenly master, the Lord God, because in spite of the fact that I've been a slave and I've been unjustly treated, he has still been good and faithful to me in the midst of this. I'm not going to sleep with you. But she does not give up. And finally, she runs up to him one day. Potiphar's on a business trip. All the other slaves are out in the fields working. Joseph and Ms. Potiphar are the only ones there. And she runs up. And this time, she doesn't say uh, anything to him. She grabs him first. And she grabs his cloak. And she's got such a good grip on it. It's, just, it's, it's a fistful of cloak. And she says, Joseph, lie with me. And Joseph doesn't say anything to her. Instead, he does what Paul says in Corinthians, flee immorality. So Joseph takes off and runs the other way away from Ms. Potiphar, but he runs out of his cloak, and now she's left holding this cloak in her hand. Joseph's got a lot of problems with cloaks, man, I'm telling you. Okay, It seems to be a theme in his life. So here's what happens in, cha- in verses 13 through 23. As soon as Ms. Potiphar saw that he had left his garment in her hand and fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household, and so she gathered them around, and she said, Look, listen, my husband has brought this Hebrew among us to laugh at us, to make fun of us, to make sport of us. He came in here to lie with me, and so I cried out in a loud voice. I'm the victim in, in this whole thing. And as, soon as he came, uh, and as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid the garment by her side until his master came home. Now Potiphar comes home, and she goes up to him, and she says, Listen, the Hebrew servant whom you brought in among us came to me to laugh at me, to make sport of me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. As soon as Potiphar heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. Let me just point out a little ambiguity here. The text doesn't tell us who Potiphar was mad at. Just hold that in abeyance for a minute, okay? So his anger was kindled, and Joseph's master put him away into a prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and Joseph was there in prison. By the way, this prison was actually in the basement of Potiphar's property. Okay? But the Lord was with Joseph, 
and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all of the prisoners who were in the prison. Wherever, whatever was done there, Joseph was the one who did it. And the keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with Joseph and whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. So you have this situation now where Joseph is, is put into the dungeon by Potiphar, his master. But if you know anything about um, uh, ancient history again, somebody with that kind of power finds out that a man tried to mess with his wife. Does he put him into prison or does he do something else? He does something else. He has the authority to uh, execute Joseph on the spot, no due process. Instead, he puts him into prison. This has caused several commentators on the text to say, Potiphar must know that there's a problem with his wife and... Joseph had become so valuable that he really didn't want to kill him. So instead, he kind of played it right down the middle. He put him into prison. He didn't kill him, but he had to do something in order to honor his wife, even though some suspect that he doesn't think his wife is that cool. Well, we have now set the stage with these three stories, and the stage has been set with this message. Joseph's family is a mess, but we still find that God is faithful and God is with Joseph, and he's going to redeem all of this. So you might be asking, well, what's the take-home just from today? I got four points for you very quickly, and we're done. The first thing I want to say, and I want to kind of set the stage with this, is this. You and I should understand that there's a little bit of Joseph in all of us. There's a little bit of Jacob in all of us. There's a little bit of Judah in all of us. There's a little bit of Tamar in all of us. There's a little bit of Mrs. Potiphar in all of us. There's a little bit of this story in all of us. There is no way that we can look at this story and not see uh, ways that this story relates to us and our lives. Therefore, we can learn from it. So here's the first thing I would suggest that we can learn. Don't waste your suffering. I know that we live in a culture where all we want to do is get away from our suffering, the pleasure principle and all that stuff. But God clearly teaches in the Scriptures that there is a purpose to our suffering. That if we lean into it, and accept it and work through it, knowing that God will be faithful to us. He is going to use it for our betterment. Again, it's James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Consider it all joy when you encounter trials of many kinds because the testing of your faith will produce perseverance. I have a friend who says this. Why is there suffering? Because it's for our good and God's glory. And, and in the case of my friend Steve, he certainly used Steve's suffering for his glory. Uh, do you remember in 2009, there was a U.S. Airways jet that took off from LaGuardia in New York and landed just a few minutes later, where? In the Hudson River. Who was the captain of that plane? Remember his name? Sullenberger, right. And we call him Sully, though, okay? Here you go. This is really interesting. Later on, when they were talking to Captain Sullenberger, he talked about the hours upon hours upon hours upon hours that he spent in monotonous, hard work, difficult, suffering kinds of training in the off chance that someday he might have to land a jet in the water. And he said it was misery to go through that training. Yet if he hadn't gone through the suffering of that training, he would have nosedived that jet into the Hudson River and all those people would have died. God used that suffering to redeem that situation. Now, I know that your suffering isn't a formalized training plan that U.S. Airways has for you. I get that. Nevertheless, God can use that suffering in your life, redeem it, and you can use it later on for somebody else's benefit, for your benefit, and for God's glory. That's the first thing. Second thing is, don't be surprised that life is hard. I continue to be amazed how many people I run into, even Christians who ought to know better, who are absolutely blindsided by the fact that life gets hard sometimes. Why is God doing this? Why is there so much suffering in this world? Why do I have to go through this? Why is life so hard? Can't life just be good? Turn to page, if you're using one of those Bibles, turn to page 658. It is the book of 1 Peter, and there's one verse I want to read to you. This verse really ought to be a bumper sticker. It's chapter 4, verse 12 of 1 Peter, where Peter writes, Beloved, 
brothers and sisters, those of you of the faith, Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Again, and I'm telling you, I'm the biggest um, uh, perpetrator of this crime as well. Hardship comes into my life and I stand there going, and I look at, why is this strange thing happening to me? That's not the response we're supposed to have. We're supposed to look at that and say, here's an opportunity for God to work in my life again to take me through this. So don't be surprised when life is tough. Third, this is really important. God wants to build our character, not our kingdom. You and I want to be kingdom builders. You and I want to build a kingdom at work. We want to build a kingdom in our neighborhood. We want to build a kingdom at church. We want to build a kingdom at school. We want to build a kingdom with our friends. We want to build a kingdom on the 101. We want to build kingdoms anywhere. God is not concerned with us building kingdoms. He's the kingdom builder. He wants to build our character. That is really, really important. In other words, uh, C.S. Lewis wrote a book once where he talked about this. He said, the problem with the human condition is that we all pursue second things instead of first things. We pursue kingdoms and happiness in marriage and uh, success. It's not that those things aren't important or acceptable, but they're secondary things to the first things. Instead of pursuing happiness in marriage, pursue holiness. Instead of pursuing your kingdom, pursue your character. Instead of pursuing success, pursue service to others. And if you pursue those first things, those second things have a way of happening anyway. C.S. Lewis says it this way, if you aim for the world, you'll miss both God and the world. But if you aim for God, you'll probably get the world thrown in as a bonus. There's another guy named Jesus who's pretty cool, and he said it this way. uh, um, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all these other things will be added unto you. Seek first things first, not second things. God wants to build your character, not your kingdom. And finally, number four, God's stories take time. The story of Joseph takes 22 years, but it's really good, and there's a huge redemption at the end, and I can't wait for you all to get there with me in four weeks. It's really good. Um, God is a God who is not concerned with results the way we are. Rather, God wants us to embrace and endure and enjoy and expect the process and the journey. You and I look for results, and we want results now, and God is saying, no, 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 no. Leave the results up to me. You instead embrace and endure the journey and the process. So consider God a God of process and journey, not a God of results. And ultimately, understand, this is the life that Jesus lived for you and I. Jesus' God story took 33 years. And if you include all of the Old Testament run-up, And the prophetic um, uh, sayings about the Messiah coming, it took thousands of years. His story in his own lifetime took 33 years. And it was a 33-year march to the cross so that you and I could be forgiven of our sin and then given eternal life when he busted out of that grave three days later. We can look at that example and know that God is a God of process and journey, not of results. He'll take care of the results. You and I need to lean into Jesus in His process, in His journey. Hang in there with me on this series. I'm telling you, it gets even better as the weeks build up to that wonderful chapter 50 when Joseph and his brothers get back together again. Let's pray together and the band will come and lead us. God, thank You for Your Word and its truth. Thank You for confronting us with it. And, and thank you for being a God who's willing to tell us all the bad stuff along with the good stuff. And God, thank you for being a God that redeems the bad stuff and uses it for our good and your glory. Help us to lean into that and understand that. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, Frank. Would you uh, stand with us?